The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. everyone and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast episode 12. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and I'm excited to present to you our final lecture of 2015. I hope you have wonderful plans for celebrating the new year, and if you are listening to this in 2016 or beyond, I hope it is already a prosperous new year for you. As we look forward to the new year, the goal of our podcast will be to continue helping our listeners expand their opera knowledge with content drawn from live events, classes, and lectures that we run throughout the opera season here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Today's episode is recorded from a live pre-performance lecture that was given on December 14th by one of the Guild's in-house lecturers and artistic consultants, Jane Marsh. Miss Marsh is a celebrated soprano who has sung countless operatic roles all over the world and brings a unique wealth of experience and knowledge to each of her lectures. This lecture is one of over 80 live educational events that are hosted here at the Guild every season, and as a pre-performance lecture, it was given immediately before a Met performance of Deflator Mouse, where a majority of the attendees continued on to the evening performance of the opera afterwards. If you are interested in future events like this, visit metguild.org for more details. And now, please enjoy Jane Marsh's take on Deflator Mouse. I want to talk a little bit about the history of, uh, of Operetta before we get into the clips that we're going to hear today, because it's kind of important that we all understand that opera is basically the influence of our musical theater. In other words, musical theater or musicals is basically our version of operetta. And every country has had its version of operetta. Operetta, however, first began in Paris. We all think, or some of us who have investigated it, think it started with Jacques Offenbach, but in fact, it grew out of a collaboration between Offenbach and a man by the name of Hervé. Uh, this was a man who was a master of basically nothing, but, but he was involved in every trade. And he created, because he was talented in several different things, he created an operetta and then later appeared in Orpheus and the Underworld, which was written by Offenbach. And that sort of launched the idea of operetta in Paris. And the reason there was a yen for that kind of thing is because opera comique, which basically is translated funny opera, had suddenly gotten very severe. It was very humanistic, basically. The whole idea of the meaning of, of, of the genre meaning was becoming more negative than positive, and it was involving things that were not always funny. I mean, for instance, Carmen is a version of opera comique because it follows the style of spoken dialogue between musical numbers. 
but it's anything but funny. Although there is humor in it, it has, it goes to all the extremes possible. Basically, it was beginning to turn, that is, opera comique was beginning to turn, and it was becoming more tragi tragic than it was funny. It was kind of leaning toward yesteryear of Shakespeare and what Shakespeare did with literature and what Shakespeare did with his theater. So there was a definite yen that something had to happen that was new. The public in France wanted something that was short, light, and frothy. And opera comique started out with that in mind, albeit opera comique was the length of a regular opera. But uh, this man, Hervé, who is basically a froliment ranger, who was born in 1825 and died in 1892, got the idea to maybe start something, and that's why he got interested in writing something. I have to say that because Offenbach was also trying his luck in the whole uh, operetta idea, there was a tremendous jealousy between the two of them, but the appearance of Hervé in uh, Orpheus and the Underworld changed that a great deal, and then Hervé went his way and then eventually died, and Offenbach took the bull by the horns and started a whole idea in a small theater in the red light district of Paris. And basically, his first operettas were sung and acted by courtesans. They were all prostitutes who were involved in that area. So the whole idea of Jacques Offenbach's style was a little grotesque and not very frivolous. It sometimes caused in a tremendous eruption in public opinion because everybody could go to everything, opera, operetta, opera comique, whatever you wanted. It was a way of informing the public morally. And to have something that was a new idea, informing the public in a grotesque and pornographic fashion, was a little bit like oil and water. However, Offenbach continued on and eventually changed the location of his theater. And when he changed the location of his theater, he got interested in having trained voices sing the parts in his pieces. And that's basically how it began to introduce another kind of vocalism into, um, into operetta. And now, see across the street, we have Opera, trained opera singers singing operetta. And I can tell you, I have sung Rosalinda. It is no walk in the park. Neither is neither any of the, of the uh, operetta roles for any voice, whether soprano or not. It is a métier in itself. And if you are an operetta singer who sings opera, you have to make a transition uh, just like you do for singing songs. It is a whole different technical kind of way of doing things. And in Vienna, there is a whole theater that's just for operetta and not usually sung by opera singers. So they've got, they've, they sort of have a division between styles. But basically these days, in international theaters that are large, you usually have opera singers singing operetta and they have to work hard to pull it off. Uh, I have to say that we then move into the Austrian area which awakens us to the name of Johann Strauss II. Johann Strauss II was the son of Johann Strauss I, and Johann Strauss I was very rigid 
about allowing his son, uh, Strauss Jr., to study music. As a matter of fact, when he came home and found that his son was practicing the violin, he beat him with the idea that he would beat the music out of the boy because what he wanted from his son was a banker. So why not beat the music out of the boy if you want a banker? That's the best way to get a banker, you know? At any rate, uh, Johann Strauss Jr. finally was able, when the father decided he found a mistress and left home, that was the time that Johann Strauss Jr., or if you will, Johann Strauss II, was able to start to really study violin and also composition. And he began to show some incredible talent and awakened the interest of Jacques Offenbach. Now, if you don't know it, Jacques Offenbach is, was a German. He went to Paris and changed his name, <clears throat> but he basically was a German. But he wrote all of his operettas in French. When we went to Austria with Strauss Jr., he wrote everything in German. And this is one of the reasons that I chose the DVD that I'm going to play for you this evening, because it is an expose of Austrian artists and also Karl Böhm, who was an Austrian, and Otto Schenk, who is an Austrian, and the whole cast, who's Austrian. They've grown up like growing up in a doctor's family. It's in their genes by osmosis, and you have a coagulative kind of, of harmony with all of them working on this style. And the language, for those of you who speak German, the language is so marvelously Austrian. Um, the libretto was based basically um, uh, uh, on a book by Offenbach's librettist Alevi, and you know him from the, the, from the, uh, the Juive, he wrote a very famous opera by, for tenor, the Juive. Strauss was born in 1825 and he died in 1899. He was an Austrian composer born just outside of Vienna. And he was a composer of basically light music, particularly dance music. And some of the clips that I've chosen tonight make it very clear how he will morph from a polka, into, which is one rhythm, into a waltz, which is another rhythm, within the same scene without interruption. He was quite a genius at dance rhythms, and he became the waltz king of Vienna. And he was advised, although there was, there was some competition between the two of them, it wasn't serious, he was advised by Jacques Offenbach not to even try his luck in opera, but to continue to be a dance composer, maybe a ballet composer, but mostly a operetta composer. And so Johann Strauss II is basically the core, the belly button, if you will, of operetta. And he is almost more remembered for it than Offenbach, because Offenbach's operettas through opera singers and the length of them became more operatic than operetta-ish. When Johann Strauss finally became uh, rather well known, even though his father had left home for a mistress and they were not living together, all the, the whole family. His father was rather well known as an orchestra conductor and he held his son down. The, the people who had to do with Johann Strauss I were basically afraid to engage his son for fear of alienating him. And so we have to say chapeau to him that he kept 
his nose to the, ground, to the grindstone. And eventually, when his father died, he was then able to suddenly sprout wings. Uh, it reminds me of Donizetti when, when Rossini left Italy. Suddenly, he was able to sprout wings and become the composer and the musician that he really wanted of himself and that he was meant to be. I think it's important to know that even Wagner, who didn't say anything nice about anybody, particularly another composer, was very much enamored with Johann Strauss II and really said that he thought it was one of the greatest kinds of music that he could possibly imagine, though it wasn't his, it wasn't his kind of music. Uh, he, was, he was revered by his contemporaries. Strauss, Richard Strauss, in his Rosenkavalier said, how can I forget Johannes Strauss II, when I, the king of the waltz, when I get into my waltzes in the second act and also the third act of Rosenkavalier. So he influenced people who were of another genre, more in opera, very much when, it, when people were involved in anything that had to do with rhythm or waltz or polka, they turned to the idea of Strauss II. He died quite early, 1899, at 73, and he died basically from pleural pneumonia. It has to do with a story of revenge, Fledermaus does. It's revenge on the baritone, uh, and the baritone is Eisenstein, who has left his friend, another baritone, in the park, drunk, dressed up as a bat, and the ridicule after, after this happens has caused some concern in, in, uh, uh, in this friend. And so he creates a whole revenge opera, or in this case an operetta, about getting revenge on his friend, which seems a little cruel. But the way it's served to us is so special and so full of rhythm and also so full of sentiment that somehow we're willing to take a rather nebulous story and remember it and want to see it over and over and over again. Uh, it might interest you to know that when we talk about our musical theater, or if you will, our version of operettas, they are light operas with acting. And most musicals, just so we understand the difference there, even in our own country, most musicals are plays with singing and dancing. That's a little banally put, but the, the emphasis on one is stronger than on the other of certain things. Does that, you follow that? And so for a, for a musical theater piece, The King and I, let's just say, because The King and I has some sumptuous <coughs> kinds of melodic structure in it, you don't want opera singers that are too artsy. I think it would be great, but the public still wants to hear a feeling of the everyday guy. And if you get someone who's got too much of an operatically trained voice in our musical theater, it isn't frothy enough every day, and it isn't middle-of-the-road everyday guy. There, is a couple, there are a couple of exceptions to that. If you have somebody come in and sing, climb every mountain, you, the more beautiful the voice, the better. Albeit, I will say, the people who've been come, become famous in that role were not singers. Uh, but it, that's a general rule. When it comes in, also the, the range of the whole musical theater is not as extensive with opera, so you don't need the whole voice. And therefore, whatever you do with that middle range, it needs to sound very simple. 
If it sounds too operatic, it bothers people because it doesn't go with the subject matter. And it's an important thing to think about that. The characters in a musical may be more complex than in an operetta, and sometimes a musical is a little bit longer than an operetta, but not always. Die Fledermaus is a piece that is just a little bit of history on it, and then I'll move on. It is basically, a liter the literary source I said was by Alevi, it's basically his Réveillon, uh, which is a what was a piece that he wrote, and it, uh, uh, which of course means revenge, and, and he then uh, created, uh, Strauss did, created from the subject matter his own take on what le réveillon is. And so we have an idea that it comes from the French theater, has then been translated into German and stayed there, and from the German it has been translated into English for non-German speaking countries. Kind of important because not every piece is, uh, has that history, that, that willingness behind the history. We sometimes will translate a piece that is opera or operetta in a language of the country it's being sung in just for the public. But this is something that has become almost a, a fashion in itself. It isn't just because of the language, it's because people feel the piece is popular enough. And that makes a difference there. Um, it uh, was first premiered in 1874 at the Theater an der Wien, and I've sung recitals at the Theater an der Wien in Vienna. It's down the street from the Staatsoper. Um, it was first sung in English in 1876 in London, the Alhambra Theater. And now I'd like to get into some of our musical clips, because I think they're such fun. So we are in... Eisenstein's apartment. Gabriel von Eisenstein has been sentenced to eight days in prison for insulting an official. He actually hit him, too, partially due to the incompetence of his lawyer. Adele, who is Eisenstein's maid, has received a letter from her sister inviting her to Prince Orlovsky's ball that evening and advising her to make up some excuse to get the evening off. So she spends the first part of Act One trying to convince Rosalinda that she's got a sick aunt and trying to convince Eisenstein of the same. Well, to make a long story short, uh, she goes to the ball, she gets the night free and goes to the ball and Eisenstein is visited by one of his friends and it actually is the friend who uh, was embarrassed so much in the park when he got drunk and was in the costume of the bat. Um, and says, look, I want to invite you to a party. And the whole party is an intrigue against Eisenstein. Get him to the party, get him to pretend he's somebody else, get his wife there too to pretend she's someone else, and his maid, and the whole thing is to embarrass Eisenstein. And at the end of the, of the operetta, that happens. Just so you have an idea, I'm, I'm sure you have some idea of the, of the piece anyway, but it's in, interesting to know because I'm going to just so, show sporadic things. So seemingly going off to jail, this musical number that I'm going to play is fabulous in its tempi changes. It's typical of Johann Strauss's talent in trying to show sentiment, humor, frothiness, and upbeatness. So I want you to listen to this trio. This is Eisenstein, who is on his way off to see jail, when in fact he's not going to jail at all, he's going to go to, to Prince Orlovsky's party. Let's watch. 
Rushing off in his tie and tails, the purpose of the tie and tails, according to what he's told his wife, is they cannot make me go down. They can put me in jail, but they can't embarrass me. And so I'm going to dress in the best suit I have. Well, he really has an ulterior motive. He's going to rush off to a prince's party. And that's the reason he's dressed the way he is. But the idea is a humorously fashioned uh, piece by Strauss that so you get three different kinds of temperament, and through the rhythm, it makes us all jump for joy. And this continues. Uh, so, in order to compromise, when Alfred, the lover of, of uh, Rosalinda, appears on the scene and dresses up as her husband, just because he wants to play her husband, because her husband's gone off to prison, just one ma, just once, let's just do it once, he keeps saying, you know. And so he dresses up as Eisenstein. At that point, the governor of the prison comes along to take Eisenstein to prison and instead in order to sort of make uh, amends to 
to Rosalinda, Alfred, who has nothing to do with anybody except that he loves Rosalinda, goes off to jail. And that takes care of him. In the meantime, Falke, who is the one who was embarrassed in the bat's costume, hence the name of the piece, bat means Fledermaus, appears, and he has already said to Eisenstein that he wants him to come to the party, and we just saw Eisenstein go off. He comes back and he also talks to Rosalinda and gets her in on the whole intrigue. Nobody really cares much about Adele, but she happens to end up at the same party too. And so we're going to move on to the second act where we see Prince Orlovsky entertain his friends and entertain Eisenstein and basically saying, life bores me to death and all I want to do is laugh. So he sings a fabulous aria about his wishes. Wenn ich mit a hand on sits beim Wein und flasch und flasche heller, muss jeder mit mir durstig sein, sonst wird er grappig her. Und hüpft er Glas um Glas ich ein, tut ich kein Widerspruch. Misleiden kann ich, wenn sie schreit, ich will nicht hacken. Wer mir beim Trinken nicht pariert, sich ziert wie ein Trott, dem werfe ich ganz unschenig. Die Flasche an den Koch, dem werfe ich ganz ungeniert die Flasche an den Koch. Und fragen Sie, ich bitte, warum ich das denn tue? Warum ich das denn tue? Siehst mal bei mir so sitze, Uh, just so you're clear about the story of the revenge, the story of the revenge is they've gone to a costume party and, and uh, they've all gotten drunk. And uh, uh, Falke, whom we're going to see in a few minutes, is somebody who, who dressed up as a bat and they left him in the park, passed out, and he, he was terribly embarrassed when he woke up and was sober and everyone was laughing at him. So this whole idea, I've said this before earlier today, but the whole idea is for revenge, which isn't a very happy thing. But look what Johann Strauss does with it, because we laugh our way through it. It's really great, great fun. And, and we don't have a feeling, really, of revenge. We just have a feeling of party time, really. Uh, at any rate, we move on now to Eisenstein, who meets his maid Adele at the party. And he thinks, what a cute girl, but she looks an awful lot like my maid. And so there's a, he is pretending to be a marquee, she is pretending to be an actress, and we will then soon see uh, Rosalinda, who is pretending to be a, a Hungarian countess. And she sings the Chardas, which is marvelous. At any rate, we now have Adele, who is a simple barmaid kind of a person who is engaged as a maid in a very a very elegant house, and she's dressed up to the nines, and she looks exactly like she looks in, the act, in Act One, in Act Two, 
But nevertheless, there's this discrepancy of whether she really is the maid. And she sings the famous aria, Mein Herr Marquis. And so she, she basically is jostling with her boss because he thinks she could be the actress she's pretending to be. So these were the kinds of things that Johann Strauss would weave in to a whole story. And this is what keeps us so amused. And we don't even realize why. It's he was an ingenious kind of a guy. We now move on to the fact that um, we, can, uh, we can enjoy life very much if we happen to be wearing a mask and singing a Hungarian chardas at a Prince Orlovsky party and pretending we are a countess. Um, she is going to sing a wonderful piece called the chardas, which is a dance, one, and you will hear it in the piece. It's not at all easy to sing. Uh, she comes in in a completely different outfit than she was dressed in in the first act. We saw her in the first act in the trio. And basically, she is introduced to her husband, who has introduced himself as a Marquis Renard, and speaks with a pseudo-French accent to her. And she speaks with a pseudo-Hungarian uh, accent. Um, they are introduced to each other, and they, he's very enamored with her. And all she wants to do is get a hold of his watch, which she does. And she puts it down into her bosom, and somebody says, you'll never find it there. Well, I'm not even going to go into the joke about that, but at any rate, it is uh, it, it's a cute a, a cute piece, and then eventually she gets up and sings the piece that we're now going to hear, and he, of course, is completely sold on her, not realizing that it's his own wife who's playing a game with him. Play. 
I think the things that he does with the rhythms of the everyday pieces and the way he holds it all together, I'm talking about Strauss now, is the thing that made everything work for him. Because in the midst of all this fun, they've gone to a party, everybody's had a little dr something to drink, now everybody's kissing and hugging a little bit as at some, sometimes they found somebody at the party, and now we come in to Brüderlein, Schwesterlein. And this is a piece that is sung quite seriously by Falke, who is the one who has arranged this whole intrigant kind of a thing, this intrigue uh, against uh, Eisenstein. This is a moment of sentiment, but it's also in a moment of rhythmic um, justification of what Strauss could do. We hear the aria first sung by Falke. It is then joined by all of the various kissing couples. And then we move in quite seamlessly to a polka, and then we move from a polka into a waltz. So he has all of these various rhythms that are started and finished, but they also morph into another rhythm. This is cr incredibly ingenious without having to have stop-starts. So let's listen first to Brüderlein Schwesterlein. I want to play the whole number. It's not short. But I'd like you to hear the whole thing. It starts off first sung by the baritone Falke, who's the one who started this whole thing against his friend. And then the whole group joins in. Thank you. 
in case you're not aware of the fact that Brüderlein and Schwesterlein is a way of people feeling particularly close to each other, and if they have the formal U, which is Z, they suddenly become informal through all the kissing to the informal U, which is do. And there is a whole way that couples can do this by sling, slinging their arms around each other and drinking and then kissing each other. Well, they don't need to sling their arms. You can see they're kissing each other anyway here. I like all the kissing, I have to tell you. And it's very typical of Strauss to suddenly, in the midst of all this wild rhythm, put a fabulous piece in like what we're going to hear. So let's watch. <laughs> from one rhythm into a three-beat rhythm, three beats in a measure, is through Orlovsky, who went genug, papi, papa, one, two, three, one, two, da, pa, 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 pa. It's suddenly, everybody is hand-holding with everybody else, and it suddenly keeps a rhythm just flooding forward. This is ingenious. It really is. And you notice how we all want to get up and dance. It's a fabulous, fabulous performance of this particular um, uh, style and it's done by people who've grown up with the style. Now I want to play one last thing. You have to realize that all comes out in the wash. They are suddenly in jail because that's where um, Eisenstein is headed and there's a whole back and forth of whether they forgive or whether they don't forgive. Finally um, everybody has their own agenda. Rosalinda's going to divorce her husband because of what he's done to her at, dressed up as a countess and singing the Jardus and finally he says Rosal that's a way of saying Rosie. He gets down on his knees. And so she says, he says, besides, it's the champagne that did it. So the last minute that I'm going to play is a champagne of all's well that ends well, and let's still love each other, and let's go forward. So let's listen to this. Listen to the rhythm. Verzeih deinem treuen Gabriel. Du siehst nur der 
Champagnerwein, mein Schuld. so much for listening to episode 12 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do us a favor and leave a comment or a review in iTunes for us. These reviews help the podcast become more visible and allow us to educate a wider audience. And of course, we love hearing what kinds of topics you want to learn more about or see more from us in the future. Also, this podcast is our gift to you. It comes to you free from the Met Opera Guild. But if you would like to make a tax-deductible donation towards our podcasting efforts, especially as the year is coming to an end, you can do so at metguild.org podcast. With that, we look forward to being with you again in the year 2016. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host. Thank you for listening. And I wish all of you a wonderful and very happy new year. 